My name is Richard Morales, and I want to welcome you to the Prison Post. This is your podcast for conversations surrounding the need to reform prisons from the perspective of formerly incarcerated people, community members, and leaders in the restorative justice movement. The Prison Post will feature an episode every Wednesday with people who are in the fight to restore lives and heal communities. All right. Welcome back. Welcome back to the Prison Post. This, my name is Richard Morellis. Uh, the Prison Post is a podcast of the Crop Organization. This is my co-host, the always jovial Jason Bryant. Jovial Jason. That was actually my uh, AVP alliterative name. You know how you had to pick an adjective? That was it, Jovial Jason. <laughs> That's right. Over the course of the last weeks, for some of our subscribers and followers, you'll know that we've been releasing some incarceration and transformational stories. For those that are still on the inside, those are audio only. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and pretty much any of the major podcasting platforms, and about 30 others if you have specific apps on your phone. A lot of them have been very emotional, been getting a lot of feedback on on just uh, some of the gut-wrenching stories that are transforming mindsets across the country about the currently and formerly incarcerated. You know what? But uh, today I'm excited about our guest. Uh, he actually had Jason and I on his Facebook live show. Uh, we just want to welcome you today, uh, Phil Melendez from Restore Justice. That's right. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Glad to, uh, well, not glad to see that day room. I just noticed that on the uh, <laughs> You guys is uh, on, the, on the picture. I'm like, oh, okay, sure. right. mm-hmm. don't miss well, that. Yeah. The good, the good, the good thing about that day room, Phil, it's empty. Yeah, that's yeah. true. It's the only good. That's the goal. Room. Yes, sir. I think that's how. That's how we could collaborate on uh, as organizations. Is that being the goal that one day those uh, those uh, <laughs> very memorable uh, day rooms, uh, those two seventy designs, uh, yep. will be empty and. Um, I, I want to say a little bit about Phil, uh, introduce him a little bit, but after serving 21 years, um, 12 days out after coming out, um, I was at the Capitol to testify for AB 965, time credits for youthful offenders. And uh, that's the first time I ever met Phil there. I thought he was a, I thought he was an assembly member or a senator or something, so well-spoken right. and articulate. I right. never, I never, I did definitely didn't know that you were formerly incarcerated and and uh, didn't know that you're on the forefronts of the work to uh, restore, um, you know, to change policy reform and, and criminal justice reform at the Capitol with some of the policy work that you're doing at Restore Justice. And uh, since then, I mean, I remember seeing you after I was out 90 days testifying in the Senate and and uh, a multitude of times after that. It seems like we always meet on the was it the sixth floor at the at the coffee shop up there. <laughs> yep, the coffee shop, also just in various committee chambers and whatnot. Yeah, yep. that's crazy that you met. That's that's where we met. That's that's funny. Absolutely. <clears throat> I'll share with the audience a little bit about Phil. He's the director of organizing at Restore Justice. We both, on behalf of Crop Organization, want to say uh, congratulations on your new role there. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, yep, that's right. That's right. Nice. Phil returned home. He returned home in September of 2017 after serving a life sentence. Uh, While he was incarcerated, he facilitated many self-help groups and restorative programs, mentored neglected and traumatized youth, and organized numerous events linking community members with incarcerated people at San Quentin. He also worked closely with Adnan Khan, his wife Alex, Aziz, and Rebecca at Restored Justice on numerous events and initiatives while incarcerated. Uh, You don't hear that. You don't hear about that every day. So, uh, you're also very passionate, Phil. I know you're passionate about sharing your experiences and the knowledge that you've acquired on your journey along the way to ensure that no one goes down the same path that you did, that we did. So again, welcome to the Prison Post, Phil. It's uh, been a long time coming. We're, we're grateful to have you here. We had a great time on your uh, Facebook Live show, The Parole Show. And maybe you could uh, start off by telling people how they could um, go back and check out some of those old episodes and what's the latest there. Yeah, so as far as the parole show, you know, that it sparked because of COVID at, at Restore. We were doing a lot of uh, programs and events, as you mentioned just now. But, you know, with the pandemic, we were just, we were like two weeks away from one of our events. We were going to bring you know, survivors of crime, survivors of harm in the community, uh, district attorneys, uh, just any, anybody who's, who's uh, willing to experience 
the dialogue between uh, currently incarcerated people responsible for harm and people who've lost loved ones to violence. So, mm-hmm. uh, unfortunately, COVID had other plans for us, and those plans made us shift and, and kind of like ebb and flow with with the, with the pandemic and the lockdowns. I've, I got to put it air quotes in because you know people be saying lockdown. They use that term a little too loosely, but sure, sure. <laughs> <laughs> but um, as far as the 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 parole show, it sparked off of Anand's live shows. He, he started going live early on in the pandemic. And um, he he had me on one day. He was like, hey, man, you know, talk about the parole board and what that's like. And I was like, okay, sure. And then during the show and even after, he was getting a lot of questions like, hey, what about this and what about that? And then, like, uh, I think him and Alex texted me that night. was like, hey, we should have you on again. And then maybe just do your own. And just start talking about the parole process and what that's like because it's such a mystery for, for well even for the folks inside. Like I remember yeah. when I was, I think it was when I first got to San Quentin, people were talking about the parole board, and, and I was you know doing groups and programs a little bit, little little here and there, but uh, not really preparing for anything because you know the law hadn't changed for me to SB two sixty one hadn't passed, so I hadn't I didn't have an opportunity to go to the parole board for years. I didn't really know. Anyways, a lot of folks even inside or, or of that same mind, I've met lifers that, you know, on level four just say, man, you're the first lifer i ever seen go home. So it's a big mystery inside and it's a big mystery out here for the families. And so uh, we figured, you know, as far as our work goes, since we're on a pause from going inside, we can at least help the people out here understand what that process looks like. So we did like, I think maybe four something, 50 episodes on just the pro board process from- How many? From- 40 to 50, I think. Um, oh, my God. That. Maybe a little less. Maybe 30-something, 40. I'm being, I'm being uh, grandiose, but I did a lot. <laughs> it was a lot of shows. And, I mean, I broke down just about everything from uh, stack evaluation to, um, to how to address write-ups for violence, how to address write-ups for phones, how to uh, address write-ups for substance abuse, how to write remorse letters, how to, you know, just basically everything that goes into a parole packet. I broke all of those down and just took questions and, and yeah, so you well, can go well, on. Yep. What was, what was the feedback that you got from that, Phil? Because, I mean, your audience obviously are, are the family and the loved member, uh, loved ones of incarcerated people. Did they, were they receptive to it? Did they know what to do with that information? Were they writing to their family? What, what was it like? Yeah, so I did get a lot of questions, a lot mm. of positive feedback. I even had a few messages on Messenger, like, hey, my loved one's coming home. Like, you know, thank you so much. And I'll be like, wow. Mm. I mean, and it's crazy to hear that. But, sure. you know, and so they, they say, they would always tell me, like, we, we took everything that you have, we wrote it down. And then I started actually putting PDFs together to send out to folks, too. And so I would send those out. And so they would request them. I'd send them. They'd send them into their loved ones. And, you know, based on, on the pandemic with the lockdown, now that's a lockdown inside. So since folks sure. are on lockdown now, they can't program. That's a lockdown. Right. They really know what to do. And so, you know, I gave them a lot of book suggestions. And uh, so folks can do book reports and prepare for the board that way. And, yeah, it was, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of glad I, I, I stopped it for now because, of right. my, I mean, it was like nonstop. Like, I need this. Right. What's 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 this? Some of them I would just put them all together and just do a show on it. Some sometimes I just do a Q and A. But yeah, yeah. It, was, it was a positive feedback from the families. So now your your parole show is it on hiatus or have you changed? Are you going to change lanes or? Yeah, that's the thing. I'm thinking about changing lanes because okay. um, for one, the parole show it had morphed into the entry, and, and okay. that's something we can continue. I had a friend of mine who's just came home. He was on the show like twice. He's like, hey, when are we going to go again? I have some real great updates. And I'm like, oh. Right, right. So, I mean, so there's a, a whole reentry. So after I did all the shows I could on parole, like I, the, the logical step for me was to go to reentry. That's why I had you Absolutely. guys up there uh, and, and a whole bunch of other folks kind of highlight, highlighting the, you know, the, the great things that people are up to when they're given their second chance. So there's still that possibility. But right now, just with this, uh, as you mentioned, the, the promotion, the new role, it's, it's very time consuming. Uh, it's mm-hmm. very awesome. Uh, but you know that's not to say that I won't go back to doing parole shows and maybe focusing on reentry or even just focusing on organizing and, and giving folks games on a game on how to uh, you know organize a community. No, that's great. Let's see. Let's see. We we uh, we definitely could uh, collaborate on on talking about reentry. Uh, Want to know some of the reentry work that you guys are doing? But 
Uh, Phil, real quick, uh, you mentioned lockdowns, and sometimes uh, we have audience members who have never been incarcerated, their family members, or also people that are just curious. Um, would you would you talk about briefly in, in, uh, what a lockdown is? What's one of the longest lockdowns that you've experienced, um, and um, you know how that affects people on the inside? Yeah, so it it affects people in multiple ways. Longest lockdown I remember, I think it was about, let's say, six months. And that's actually small potatoes compared to other lockdowns. I've seen prisons go on lockdown for a year, come off for one day, violence erupts, and then go back down for another few months. So it's, uh, yeah, so for me, it, it was six months. And those lockdowns, they come about because for uh, various reasons. Maybe there's a, an influx of drugs or phones coming on the yard and they want to shut things down and really do some investigating. Or uh, pe- people have, uh, you know, if there's riots, if there's uh, racial tension, sadly in prison there is, there. I mean, it's very racially divided. And so sometimes there's racial tension, there's gang tension, uh, and sometimes those tensions erupt in violence. And when the administration doesn't know how to deal with it, how to isolate it, or how to, um, you know, get a ceasefire going, then their, their response is to just lock stuff down. And that means everybody. And so um, what that looks like is you will have your meals all brought to you in the morning. In the morning, they'll get breakfast and a sack lunch. And then in the nighttime, they'll bring you dinner. And so basically you're staying in the cell. And then after two or three days, they might give you a shower. Um, and that's really about it. I know they're supposed to give yeah. you certain amounts of, uh, I think uh, by law, there's supposed to be like 10 hours of yard time a day. But during lockdowns, those those rules go out the window. And so you're basically locked in 24-7. Uh, and then you're, the, 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 the great outing for some folks, I remember being in the hole too, and the great outing was to go to the shower. Like that's, oh, yeah. that's like the, the highlight of the day. Like I got a real you shower. Give it, you're, giving, you're giving me a flashback right now because when you talk about yeah. lockdowns and showers, I'm thinking about them calling out on the tier, you know, shower shoes and boxers, gentlemen, shower shoes and boxers. Yeah, depending on what's yep. going on, you know. Yeah, even with that, you know, you, you come out, you you put your hands behind your back, they'll cuff you up, and then you know you'll have your showers, you'll be in your box, you'll have your uh, mm-hmm. showers on, you'll be in your boxers, your towel rolled up with your uh your soap in there, and then they escort you, and you just kind of shuffle along and five minutes, you got five yeah. minutes, you got five minutes, five minutes. I think my longest lockdown was uh, ten and a half months at at New Corcoran in two thousand. Uh, I think I was 23 years old, 10 and a half months. And you're right, Phil, like once every three days, you get to walk to that shower for that uh, handcuffed, put you in the shower, put your hands outside of the door, un- unhandcuff you. You can shower once you're done, walking back in showers and uh, shower shoes and boxers, handcuffed again, and uh, doing that behind the behind the back handcuff to the faces you see in the cell because six months or 10 months, or like you said, a year or two is a long time to be locked down to not see other faces, except, uh, the, you know, the person that you're in the cell with, or unless, or even if you're alone. And, um, and I mean, I, I, on the one hand, it was hard to go through 10 and a half months after we came out and finally got some yard because there was not uh, 10 hours a yard a week. There was no none. And I think we all look like ghosts, mm-hmm. um, coming out of there. Um, uh, so lockdowns are rough and, um, you know, like you said, um, not not everybody's always responsible, but everybody's definitely going to pay while they do their uh, investigation. You know, last night, uh, Phil, I was on um, um, asked to speak at a online event, a virtual event with um, uh, a couple of schools, uh, Bellarmine School in the Bay Area and Presentation High School. And it was a restorative justice event. And every time I hear the word restorative justice, I think of restore justice. And we were talking about our stories. And I think Jason and I were colleagues. And um, we spend so much time thinking about the present and the future that it sometimes um, it loses our, our, our folk. We, we sometimes forget. Were we really there 21 years and 20 years? And, and did that really happen? And then when we start being asked to tap into those stories, I don't know about you, but for me, it, it gets a... Uh, uh, I get a little bit emotional um, just thinking about all the people and, and how long it was. I mean, it was so long. And um, there was a time, like you said, when no, no lifers ever got out. And and to see uh, you out and Jason out and, and a lot of our friends that are out thriving, uh, it's really a, it's really like a miracle. Um, I wanted to, to ask you, Phil, if you would speak about 
the work you've done around making living amends and the work you're doing with survivors today. Um, and, and, and if you would like to talk about like that title, restore justice along the way too, and how, um, that is meaningful to your organization. Yeah, for sure. Um, you get, get me feeling all in my feels right now, just talking about the, uh, you know, the impacts of it all. Uh, I think I, I have, I've had those same feelings where you say like, damn, did that really happen? You know, sometimes it really, it feels like, like that was just a bad nightmare. Um, mm-hmm. and, but it, but it, but it did happen. And then I still have nightmares now too. I don't know if you guys have that. I like often, like more, more often than I like, um, having just bad dreams of like, Oh, you got to go back just for a little bit. And then they forget. And then it's like, damn, damn, it's been months. Damn. I, what, what's happening? And then I heard, uh, and then another dream I had, like, like just two nights ago, they said uh, in the dream, they said something about me uh, getting transferred. And I was like, I ain't even supposed to be here no more. Like I'm, I'm supposed to be home. And then <laughs> they, they, said, uh, they said, well, we're going to transfer you back to Corcoran. Cause I was at Corcoran too, uh, but old Corcoran for like almost nine years or maybe 10 years, something like that. And um, you know, I was like, well, well, at least I know when I go to Corcoran, I'm going to get to a classification committee and they're going to fix this. And like, and that was, and it's like, it happens to more often, like I said, more often than I, than I like, I wish I didn't have those dreams at all. They're very, very, um, really rough to wake up from. And yeah, but as far as like, um, the work around like healing, like I think that's, that's the main point of all of this, right. Is the healing mm-hmm. work that we have to do. Um, you know, there was a lot of healing work that I had to do on myself. Um, to get to this point and to also not let those dreams affect me in such a negative way. Um, Absolutely. It was a long journey though. Um, you know, I was a very, very uh, hurt and angry child and mm-hmm. committed a lot of harm in my community. And, um, you know, when we talk about living amends, that means, you know, lives were taken and you can't make direct amends. And so um, definitely want listeners to, to understand that particular aspect of it. Um, and there's different ways to go about making living amends. As you mentioned earlier, uh, working with uh, you know uh, neglected and traumatized youth, that was part of my living amends. So I know I'm a little everywhere. There's there's a lot there to unpack. You're all right. Um, but I will say that um, just based on the harm that I caused, I had I finally come to realization and come to terms with with the the impacts of it and really looked at it in a real way after hearing from a survivor of crime. And, and when she came and talked to our group, she, she broke me down. She broke down everybody in, 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 the, in the group. And I'm talking about dudes with, uh, you know, tattoo faces, you know, face tats, teardrops, all that stuff, just balling. Like, you know, we had all committed horrible crimes and, and really were coming to grips with it at that particular moment. And from that moment on, I knew I had to make huge changes and take bigger strides to to be a better person. And then, you know, I started learning about the concept of, of a man through AA and I took I don't know how many groups and programs, but uh, just the fact that people who go around and make amends, uh, you know, I was all for that. You know, I apologized to my family. I found and identified anybody that I could to, to make my apologies, to find out what those amends would look like. And then I had to tackle the, the fact that, you know, there's, there's some amends that I can't make. And, mm-hmm. I remember coming coming to that impasse and just really having conversations with my fellow incarcerated folks and them telling me, well, you know, you got to make living amends. And I was like, well, that don't sound, you know, I mean, that sounds cool, but like, you know, in my heart, just based on, on you know, the pain and the remorse that I felt for what I've done, it's like, there's just nothing and there's nothing that I can do. And so it's like, and people, they were like, yeah, that's right. That's true. So the, the, you make the living amends and you make them forever as long as you're living. That's why they call them living amends. And I was like, oh, okay. Okay, I can do that. You know, I can do that. And so, you know, I just made a, uh, a commitment to myself, you know, just based on, on the people that I, the lives that I took to live those living amends. And so every chance that I got, I made sure that I was showing up for my community, even as an incarcerated person in a way that, that was demonstrable of uh, restorative justice, restorative practices. And, 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 and it also demonstrated the, the path forward towards healing our communities, because that's what ultimately we, that's what we need. We don't need, um, you know, harsh sentences. We don't need, uh, we, we don't need to, to make the streets more dangerous. We need to make the streets more safer. 
And so how do we do that? And that's, that's, it comes from us. You know, like when I talk about not wanting anyone to go down my path and sharing my story, this is why I like everyone to know what went into my healing and my growth and, and reconnecting with my best self so that folks can do the same. And if you have people that are running around with, you know, well, as, as well-adjusted people, you're not going to have people that are going to be harming people in the community because they're harmed. So that's part of my living amends. But uh, you also mentioned the work with survivors. Um, as I mentioned, that the, the person that came and shared with our group, she really turned my life around. And so I felt like, you know, just based on the harm that I caused, based on the benefit that I got from her, I needed to pay all of that forward. And so mm-hmm. every chance that I got, I would show up for <clears throat> would show up for survivors. You know, our organization is called Restore Justice, and we are founded on, on the principles of restorative justice. And part of those is, is um, I know uh, one of the main questions that we ask in restorative justice is who's been harmed, who's responsible, and how we repair things. And so um, we do uh, focus on the needs of survivors at Restore Justice. And we had... Um, we had a contract with the CDCR who uh, runs the VOD uh, program, the Victim Offender Dialogues. And we don't agree with that terminology. We actually call them restorative dialogues. But mm-hmm. what we would do is we would meet with someone who's either lost a loved one to violence and uh, or has just been harmed in general, maybe assaulted or, or uh, hurt in any type of way. And we would, if they request a dialogue with the person that harmed them, then they, that goes to the CDCR and then gets dispatched to uh, us and, and another a few hand, a handful of organizations that, that do these uh, dialogues. <clears throat> and so for me, that was huge to say, like, okay, I'm going to work with these survivors, and I'm going right. to go inside, and I'm going to help this person that's responsible for the harm uh, learn the same things that I learned so that they can have a meaningful dialogue and hopefully answer some questions and facilitate as much healing as possible. And so, you know, that's another way for me to make my living amends. And so doing that, it, it was, it, had, it was a real honor. It was, uh, mm-hmm. it was, I mean, I used to wake up and think like, man, this is really my, my job. This is my work. And, and it's, it's a beautiful thing. And I'm really grateful for the second chance and grateful for the opportunity to, to make those living amends in that, in that way. What's the best part and the worst part about working with survivors of violent crime? Mm. The best part is knowing that I am making a difference in their life. Mm. Um, they, you know, after sometimes I'll go into a play into a space where they have no idea about what happens in prison. They have no idea about the, the changes that folks make and, and the work that we do. And, you know, sometimes they're angry. And so and right. I sat down in, in, in survivors, victim support groups, not knowing that, you know, them not knowing who I was and what I've done. And, and I, I you know, I had palms sweating and, you know, I, I had met a couple of them and they wanted me to share because they felt it was necessary and helpful for their, for their crew. So I went, you know, it was, it was hard and it was scary. And, but I showed up and, and I told them, I was like, this is what happened. This is what I did. And this is why, and, you know, this is, and, you know, my tears just flowed like crazy and, you know, my remorse was really evident. And some of them had stern faces. And, but we're like, okay, like, I get it, though. Like, and, right. and, and them understand. Like people, people, can, people can be sorry. People can change, you know. Yeah. That's, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, like, eye-opening for them. And it starts to, you know, shift the way they look at the person that harmed them or, or took their loved one's life. Um, mm-hmm. And it helps unburden them. And, and that, sure. to me, is huge. And, um so, so there's pain in it, but that's beneficial. As far as the, the, the most painful parts is just, um, you know, constantly reliving my trauma. Um, so, but at the same time, you know, I still have those feelings of like, this is what I owe though. And, and, and wow. those amends last forever. So um, I do it. And I definitely have to make sure that, um, you know, I don't get into a funk because it's easy to, to just kind of like detach and, and like feel like you need to go somewhere like out of your out of body but right, like, right. I make sure I, I, I take time to like regulate my brain, all the stuff that we learned inside, you know, as far as mm-hmm. you know, understanding those feelings and emotions as they're coming up. Um, I still use that, but I have to use it a lot, especially when I'm doing that type of work because, um, you know, it's, yes, it's living amends, but it's also like the worst part of myself that, that you know, that I really detest. And it, it's really uh, coming face to face with it again. And that's, that's not the healthiest thing to do, but sure. it's done in, in, a, in a way that is, I don't want to say responsible, but at least um, it it takes care. Sure. One of one of my favorite analogies is the distinction between looking out the window or looking in the mirror, right? And uh, 
what I hear you saying is that like a, a version of or a way to interpret your your way of living in amends is daily taking a look in the mirror and looking at you know the contributions you had to the outcomes of pain, but also to the the, the resource for healing for people. Yeah. It, it takes mm-hmm. you like let's say looking in the mirror and saying like this is who I was and this is what I'm committed to. This is the person I'm committed to being today yeah. uh, to make this world a better yeah. place. So that's 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 tremendous, Phil. Tremendous. I just want to also acknowledge the, the, the people and the organizations that are willing to go on the inside uh, with teams um, to share their stories of how they were harmed. I think back to, and I think Jason experiences as well, when we were at Soledad, um, there were five mothers that would go in and share their stories of their sons being murdered. And like you said, I don't care how tough you think you are or how ta- how many tattoos you have or, and all those things. I remember them not being a dry eye in the place. I remember another lady named Amalia Molina who would come in and she would take us through a scenario with a real with a, a person who, who had been harmed. Her brother was murdered. And then she would give us index cards and somebody would be in the role of the mother, the son, the brother, the community member, the grandma. And we had to talk about how the pain that we felt. And that was the first time where I saw so many people at once um, realizing the harm that they had caused. I mean, we, uh, most guys in prison, from my experience, they didn't have too many Father's Day cards to send home. But everyone I knew um, had definitely had a Mother's Day cards. And, mm-hmm. and there's a few great dads that have been in people's lives. But certainly mothers um, win the day. And we think about what it would have been like for our moms to uh, what would they feel if we were murdered? What, what, what would they experience? And uh, that'll get even the hardest of hearts uh, uh, begin to get emotional. And um, on top of that, not only realizing the harm that we caused, but also tapping into what did I do? What did I cause? Um, not only verbally, emotionally, psychologically, physically, um, uh, and not just a one-time thing, but, uh, for years to come uh, also with, um, um, financially, um, how did that impact their parents, their brothers and sisters, their kids, whoever it was that was harmed, there was a major impact, you know, sometimes they call it the ripple effect and I've heard it called a, a tsunami, not just a ripple, but a tsunami. So realizing the harm, taking responsibility for what we did and for what we caused, being willing to make amends, but also that service. Like you talked about working with the youth that you were working with. I could, I could imagine you lighting up in there, being able to pour into them, going into service. I saw Jason do it. Jason was a part of a program called We Care, and they would bring in um, maybe fifth grade through eighth grade students, and he would walk them around the prison. And it wasn't one of those scared straight programs that don't work where they bark at them and, and all that what he was doing was pouring into them and loving them. And maybe Jay, you could talk about that and how service is important uh, to the healing sure. process as well. Sure. You know, I, I think that uh, Phil said it so well, like living in amends is, is literally the choice to transform our lives and turn away from, you know, the evil and the, the harm that we caused in the past. So, you know, when I was inside and I, and I had my earliest transformation was the day I was arrested. And I realized that, you know, my crime wasn't, the choices I made were not only a boy about me. And, you know, I made the commitment early on not to continue revisiting the pain that I had brought to my own family, to the world. So, uh, but, but about 10 years into my sentence, when I, when I really made this shift towards being of service to others, that's when I started getting involved with work with rich and a lot of the other leadership, uh, at sold at CTF. And one of the programs that we participated in and I was a part of the executive team on was, uh, called we care. And like Rich said, you know, we had, uh, tours. There were tours of the prison, and the purpose wasn't to to scare people or to to make these young men like in some way intimidated, but it was to show them the reality of poor choices. And then the most important part of the tour was really the second half, where we spent the second half of the day in the gym, just having conversation with them about how there are people who care for them, there are people who want to be there for them and help them get clear on the future they want for themselves. So uh, that was one version of of a way in which I was living in immense as well. So. Uh, I really appreciate what Phil was sharing because, you know, it, it's, 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 it's a decision we make that from this point forward, I'm going to live 
recognizing the pain that I, ch- I, I created in the past and doing the best I can with every moment of my life to, to add value and healing in the world instead. Love it. Definitely. Similar, our program was similar at, at San Quentin. We had, we spent a few hours, you know, unpacking some of our issues, some of their traumas, and we asked them what's going on at home with you. Do you see the parallels? And also, mm-hmm. too, here's, you know, here's the time that we have. You know, I'm a lifer. I've been almost 20 years, you know, and they're like, you know, blows their mind. That's older than they are. <laughs> like, and sure. so, uh, but yeah, it, it is definitely rewarding work to, to feel like that you're making a difference in their lives, but also you're still also speaking to the needs of survivors where people just don't mm-hmm. want that to happen to somebody else. And so you're actively taking those steps with those children to make sure that they don't fall in your footsteps. That's, yeah. that's, those are the things, those, those are the things that brought me a lot of smiles when I was inside. Phil, would you, would you say that you had like an aha moment? Maybe we could spend a little time here right now, maybe five or 10 minutes, just, uh, that aha moment for you when you decided to make some different decisions with your life. Obviously you weren't always a, a mentoring, a, a, a youth and uh, you know, we made decisions to get ourselves there. Uh, but what, what was that transformational moment for you when you said, you know, enough is enough. I'm tired of being tired. I want to make some changes with my life. Was it for some people it's that, that aha moment, you know um, for others, it's a gradual process. And then would you just take us through your a little bit about your personal transformation, being found suitable, and then let's head to the re, your reentry story. Sure thing. Um, so I'm one of those gradual ones. It took me a long time. Uh, <laughs> a, lot of, uh, a lot of trauma, a lot of baggage, a lot of issues that I had to deal with for me to get there. Um, and and um, I think Jason said, like, right away, first day locked up. Um, you know, that's one. For me, hearing that door closed and really feeling trapped, like, you know, like what the hell? And and for me, being in that moment in that cell, scared as hell, not knowing what's gonna happen, not knowing just what's next. Like you really like I remember those first that first day in in the cell, it's like what happens now? Like they're gonna bring me some food, hopefully. I'm kinda hungry. Like what when? Like how? How does this all work? But um that was also actually the first time that I had to like just stop and pause. And I was we were all well not I'm gonna I don't want to generalize it, but most of us live, you know, a fast life and just partying and, and gangbanging and just doing violent mm-hmm. stuff. And just, there was no time to stop and pause. And so for me, um, that first day, I was like, you know, what the hell have I done? You know, um, and then I fast forward a couple of years later, I lose my grandpa and, mm-hmm. you know, he was like a dad to me. And so for him to, you know, to die, you know, it really shook me. It hurt me. Uh, I remember crying in myself. And then when I finally didn't have any more tears and I woke up and really, or not woke up, but just kind of looked up and, and, and thought to myself, like, how do I get to be like him? You know, what can I, what can I do to, to like, you know, live better in his name? Um, but even with that, I will still say that's not the, that was a, a, all those, those two things are still very superficial changes for me. Um, getting to San Quentin blew my mind, hearing people talk about their crimes and, and doing accountability statements and crying about their crimes and, that was a slow change. It started making me, or started showing me that people can change and can look at um, look at things in a different way, and, and they model that for me. So um, then I get into the groups and programs, learn a little bit more, get some tools in my toolbox as far as how to you know manage my emotions and really unpack trauma. But I'll still say that having that one woman come to that group and, and talk to us that was. I want to say the aha moment because even now, you know, even after being home, we still have I still have a lot of realizations that pop up that help me, you know, strengthen my my commitment to to living amends and to restorative justice. But um, so she did that, and then going into other groups, she actually made me dig deeper. Like I said, okay, I'm here in these groups and I'm learning and I'm doing good, but I need I need to do something for her. I need to do something for the people for the lives that I've taken. And so, um, and I dug deeper and um, really, really did some painful trauma healing work where, where people would help me unpack these issues, like write down all these issues, um, some, some really painful stuff. And let's talk about these for like an hour and a half. And we did that. And I remember just bawling my eyes out and having very, very profound realizations of what the impacts of certain traumas in my childhood uh, did to me and how they showed up throughout the years. And even to this day, I still have to fight them. Um, but doing all that work, uh, I think it was, I, I, I know I made a very huge commitment and the pro board uh, saw that. 
uh, you know, at the time that I went, there was a, I think a 80, 84% denial rate. Uh, mm. People were not really, people didn't have uh, high hopes for me being found suitable for parole. I, I had some hopes, but I didn't really think I was going to get it. But sure enough, in, in 2017, in my initial hearing, uh, I went and poured my heart out, showed them everything that I have learned and worked on and had, you know, my, my reentry plans. I had everything lined up for the board that they needed. Um, but you know, the most, the most important part is just to show up and, and, and let them know how you really feel about everything. And so I did that openly, honestly, uh, too honestly, I felt at, at the time of the deliberations, uh, I was like, shit, I just told them everything. Like I did horrible <laughs> stuff in prison. Like, and I had, sure. um, that's the good news is you won't have to do it again. Yeah. So, yeah. That's that's interesting you say that, though, Phil, because a lot of people, I remember having lots of conversations with guys who were getting ready for board. And there was always this, there was always this reluctance to be honest about it all, right? And it was like, because I I think it's just something about, like you you were saying earlier about how we live that lifestyle. Right. And it's like, you know, I'm not telling on myself. I ain't doing no telling. Right. Especially not on myself. But like at the end of the day, like you said, like you're there in front of the board trying to reestablish trust that you're a changed man, that you're a new person. And, you know, your willingness to just put it all out there. Like that's what sets you free. Truth literally sets you free. (laughs) That's me. Yeah, that, that's what they said. I mean, they didn't say, hey, man, this all your truth is setting you free. But what they did say is that uh, we applaud your openness and honesty and willingness to, to share even some of the most painful things and the horrible things that you've done. I was like, wow. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I mean, I, I, I kind of remember them saying that. I was actually in, in tears, like, as mm-hmm. they were reading all the, uh, you know, the, we're finding suitable based on this, that, and the other, all the mm-hmm. legal fees that they say, you know, to, to back up their finding. <laughs> but, um yeah, it was uh, it was a blur, but I, I kind of remember seeing hearing that, and I know I read it in the transcript later. Um, but yeah, they, they said we find you suitable for parole, and uh, Phil. yeah, Phil, you don't look a day over thirty five. So uh, how how many years did you do in there, and and uh, and what was that like the day that you you got out? Yeah, so I did. Uh, uh, so now I didn't used to count, but you know, once, once you're out, it's like, okay, let, I went in on this day and this day, whatever. So I, I, I did 19 years, 11 months and three days total and, uh, went in at 19 and, uh, thank you for, for the compliment, uh, but I'm <laughs> about to be 43. Um, okay. Yeah. Very soon. Um, and that first day though, uh, you know, it's a shock. It, it was a huge shock. Um, it was a dream come true. Um, you know, I remember actually waiting in the holding tank and then getting on the van that takes you to the front of the prison. I was like, man, please don't let nothing happen to this van. Don't stop. <laughs> the door, open the door, please. And uh, sure enough, we stopped. And they told this dude, hey, man, you got to hold. And he was like, what? Ah, we're just messing with you. I was like, oh, you asshole. Oh, goodness. Yeah. goodness. <laughs> <laughs> That's terrible. Yeah, I'm sure his heart sank, but it was a, a terrible joke. Um, yeah, so, but yeah, we, we pull out, and then um, sure enough, my wife, my mom, my, my niece, my daughter, uh, I think that was it. They're all waiting outside, and, and I get out. I got my little um, little bag, my little great, you know, yard clothes. And I just go up and I hug my mom and I just tell her I'm sorry. Um, uh, I'm sorry for everything. And um, yeah, I just hugged her as a free man, and it was it was a beautiful moment. Uh, I remember the yeah. first day feeling like um, just a whirl whirlwind dream. <laughs> it was um, yeah, it was crazy. It was. Um, I remember asking people who who made it home went at, into the transitional house that I uh, that I went to. Every time they came home, they would say it's it's surreal. Like surreal was the word, and surreal is still the word that I even still feel to this day. Um, and it does feel like a dream come true, still, uh, especially given given where we've been and what we've been through, what we survived, 
and, and came home against the odds, all the odds. And uh, yeah, the reentry process that was that. Uh, there's a lot there. It, it was heavy. Uh, the first day, I know we went to the Golden Gate Bridge and then um, to the parole office and checked in, and uh, they did a whole bunch of restrictions. I was like, sure, okay. Um, then, uh, you know, they said, go ahead and head to the transitional house. And I had an event coming up. I mean, it, it was just serendipitous that uh, an organization that I worked with inside had an event going on that night of a fundraiser. And um, they had me speaking at that. And they were like, if you come home that day, you got to speak. I'm like, sure. I'm definitely happy to do that. And uh, mm-hmm. I did. And that actually led to people really like resonating with my story they donated to the organization and, and sponsored mm. six month fellowship for me. Um, but that's despite having to fight geo and getting out of the transitional home right. for that, for that first event. Like that was a real, that was like the downer of the first day. That's the only downside is that I had to check into geo and is, you know, yeah. geo is just trash. <laughs> yeah, not definitely not a promotion for geo right here, but I no, do want to no, say no. this. I want to say this to you, Phil, you know, I, I really appreciate your authenticity. Like I, mm-hmm. I felt you, I felt every moment of what you just shared with us. And, and I want you to know that, uh, this ain't a dream brother. <laughs> you know, this is, this is, this is, this is a vision come true for a transformed man, because that's what you that's are. Right. You're a transformed man. And this is, you did the work, you did the work and you're still doing the work. And, uh, you know, I'm honored to know you. It's great. Likewise with you guys. Yep. Phil, you, 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 you brought up transitional housing and that's a, a good place to transition right there too. Um, <clears throat> those are housing is one of the needs that crop organization uh, is going to be addressing is addressing. And, um, I think about being in that transitional house for six months as well. And, um, and, and what it was like there and out of everybody that I was with there, there were eight of us there. Um, one has died since then of cirrhosis of the liver and hepatitis C and the other seven are, are back um, running and gunning and a couple have gone back. And I think that the number one reason was, well, it definitely has to do with mindset. It definitely, we, we have something called the four pillars of successful reentry. And that first pillar is where we take them through leadership development. We were fortunate enough to go through, spend seven years uh, becoming transformational coaches and doing the work that Jason talked about of looking in the mirror, intense insight work on how we became the people that we became, how we could transform our lives, casting the vision for the future getting healing for the, for the trauma, and then not using the trauma as an excuse to justify future criminality, drug abuse, alcoholism. And, um, and, and we were fortunate enough to get that leadership development training, but not many people are. And so it, I could see the difference um, with those short timers or people that only did a few years and they didn't get some of the programs that we did or that you did getting out in the transition. And then I realized that after transitional housing, no matter where I went for an apartment, um, three things happened. Everywhere I went, they asked, do you have two years of rental history? No. Do you have a year of pay stubs? Uh, showing that you have a continuous work history for a year. No, I haven't been out for a year. Do you have a 640 credit score or above? No. In fact, uh, not only did I not have a credit score, I had a bad credit score because somebody had stolen my identity for seven years out of Idaho. I've never been past Arizona. And some unknown person bought trucks, and I had to file a police report and had 19 fraudulent accounts. There's still 16 of those that were fixed, but still three of them are uh, messing up my credit score. And I could not find a place to live had it not been for the, the chairman of our organization, uh, Mitch Gray, co-signing for me to get an apartment, I'd be living in my car. Had it not been for my grandpa who supported me through my incarceration, I wouldn't have a car. Um, so um, I just wanted to talk about like, well, what, what, were, what, what were your decisions that you made? I know you mentioned being married, but did you, did you go directly to your wife afterwards and um, um, what other challenges do you see with housing out there? Uh, are you in the Bay Area? No, I'm by Sacramento. Okay. Yes. So. As far as the challenges, the baby awake. <laughs> no, he is awake. He's crawling around behind me right now. We're about to have a fourth guest on the show. Oh, good. 
<clears throat> yeah, so I did. I did have. Uh, I was married. I married. I got married. I think about a year and a half before I came home. Um, and my wife, she, you know, she's already established. She had a house, um, but the parole board mandated me to go to uh, Bay, the Bay Area. They said I had a good support network there, and I, I guess I did. But I really would have preferred to uh, just go home. It would have been more beneficial if I did, because you know, being in that environment, you know, as, as you said. Rich, those, those people or some of the people just weren't uh, of the same mind as me. Yes, they're in, in a transitional house and, and hopefully they're there for help, but they weren't. A lot of them weren't. Half of them weren't, I would say. And and so it's just not a good environment. And as you know, a lot of these places are situated in in uh, rough neighborhoods. I, I, mine was, Gino was in the Tenderloin. And there's people with needles in their arms on, on the sidewalk. There's, uh, I had to make sure I had good shoes to make sure I don't get stuck with needles that are on the floor. Uh, there were mm. people selling drugs. There were um, so, uh, people getting robbed. It was, it was a crazy neighborhood to come home to. I was scared. Like I would tell my wife, like when she would drop me off, like go 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 go. Like you know, I'm just jump out right here. This is fine. Just, just go. It was, it was rough. Um, and then just the programs in there that they would try to provide that were like just trash it's, for someone that has done uh, extensive work on themselves. It's like going from a PhD class to just going back to, to kindergarten. It's like, I'm sitting in this class for nothing. Like I'm, I'm really getting nothing but frustration out of it. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's terrible. Um, and then just looking for a house app, you know, when, when my time was coming into an end at geo, it was, it was frustrating to have, you know, well, I actually started working on my credit almost immediately, um, and I did have good semi good credit, or just in the good range, not in the excellent yet. But um, I had enough credit there. Uh, I did not have the rental history. I had, you know, had the record. If it, if people wanted to look it up, and so I kind of just stayed away from the the whole application, and just was like, just you 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 do this, and uh, <laughs> we'll just live together. Because we she moved. Um, we had to move because I couldn't go back to Sacramento uh, in the city. So I had to move, you know, 40 miles, 35 miles away. Um, so we found a spot and it was kind of difficult. And it was like last minute actually. And uh, we found it and uh, yeah, it's been, it's been good. And I've been working and saving and, you know, now it's time to just buy a house. And that's the sad part too. Like, like I could buy a house, but I can't rent a house. It's like, it's ridiculous. But who's going to buy a house coming out of prison? I mean, if you, went in and you had millions and then you come home to millions maybe, but like, I don't really know anybody who is in that situation. So it's kind of like a catch 22 and it just creates a horrible barrier because, you know, if people's needs aren't met, if people's needs for shelter aren't met or any basic needs aren't met, you know, people will go to extremes to get them and, and mm-hmm. or to get those needs met. And that's not uh, conducive to a crime free life. So um, yeah, it's kind of a catch 22 with, with transitional housing, with, with rentals, and just not even uh, coming home with resources. Just like, you know, they give you two hundred dollars and say, mm-hmm. like, "How is that?" They've been, they've been doing that for the last seventy years. Seventy years, and based on the inflation, yeah, from when they started doing that two hundred dollar gate money, it should be at one thousand two hundred dollars to this day. And so, like, that would help. That would at least, you know, get your foot in the door and something, or at least help me. Mm-hmm. No, that's not what. They do. I mean, I think the sad, the sad reality is that the reentry space is, in many ways, an extension of the punished model that we face in prison. Geo-ism. It really is, <laughs> my man. So you know, I mean, how can you expect someone who, when the majority of people are paroling to the Bay Area and Los Angeles area, where the cost of living is so high, and they've been, you know, incarcerated in a place that's not providing you know, pathways to market-driven skills. And and then they don't even have a roof over their head. How are they supposed to get a job? How are they supposed to participate in programming to equip them for a job? I mean, half the people coming out of prisons, they don't even have the digital, the digital literacy that's needed to apply. You know, so it's it really is, it's sad the, the, the way things have been up until now. But things are changing, Phil. Yeah. Things are changing. Yeah. Things are changing. I mean, like what you say about the application, like that's true. Like people don't know how to click on a link. Like some people don't even know how to use a cell phone. Like I did. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had one inside, you know, right. I, had answer, <laughs> I had to answer to the board for them. For, you know, yeah, yeah. But I learned some tech stuff. But even with that rudimentary phone usage skill set, 
There yeah. is so much more that people don't know. Like this right here, what is this? StreamYard, Zoom, even even people that have been free for years are still like, oh, you gotta unmute yourself. You gotta unmute yourself. So like this, I mean, just think about that, but put it in the context of someone who's been incarcerated for decades and has right. literally no tech skills to be thrust into a society like we have now. That has gotta be daunting. Uh, scary and um, just seemingly impossible to overcome. And and then everything that we need is, is based on that technology, like you said, with applications or even doing sure. a resume. Who knows how to do a Word doc with resume? There you go. There you go. So so it's interesting, though. I think it was a couple of weeks ago I was on a panel with you where they were talking about inside programming that's being available uh, to CDCR and, you know, the, the theme that just keeps coming up, and it's relevant. It's It's this proximate leadership. Like the people who are closest to the pain points typically have the best solutions. So I'm, I'm, you know, I feel honored to be with you both in this space where we're having these conversations and what we have to say is being heard by people who can make real changes because, you know, we, we know what people need. We know what people need to succeed when they're reentering the community. And, uh, you know, it's conversations like this and it's, you know, observations like that, that the, the, the lawmakers, the legislators, CDCR, they need to hear it because uh, what they have been doing has gotten us exactly where we've been getting, right? Which ain't very far. So, yeah, <clears throat> I love the conversations around a proximity and proximity leadership. You know, you would think that at, at transitional housing, there would be at least one conversation with those who are of us who are actually there and say, "What are the needs that you have?" I don't remember that question ever being asked. What are, what, are, what are some of the needs? It's more about punishment. Be here at this time. You got to wake up at this time. It's more like the prison model. Like we got to control them. And that speaks to their mindset about us. And, and, and Jason just talked about those types of uh, uh, training programs that are, that are on the, on the inside. I mean, lawnmower repair and, and small engine repair. I mean, with, without tech skills, you ain't, you ain't working on a car today unless you're at some lot working on ones from the seventies, seventies and eighties. So I think two things need to happen, and this is the this is the organizational feel we have here at Crop is is number one we need that mindset uh, development, that leadership development, that personal empowerment work where people begin to see themselves that the ceiling for who they could be and what they can do and, and, and the, what they can accomplish the ceiling's not right here. The greatest thing you can do in life is not lawnmower repair or small engine repair. Um, you could work in tech. You could work uh, on websites. You can do business to business sales. You can you can do something other than at best become a foreman on a construction site. Now, no knock to those who want to get out and their passion is construction or or cooking, but I think from the from the the mindset of the state is we got to get these guys these low end jobs, and we don't want to make the investment on something where they can actually get out and make a livable wage. I mean, as you know, out here in Sacramento, um, uh, fifteen, eighteen, twenty dollars an hour. I mean, you're you're barely surviving. You're, you're barely surviving. I, I, I'm not sure. Um, um, how, how tough it would be. I mean, maybe if you, if you're married and they have two incomes, it, you know, it could be a little bit more comfortable, but getting, uh, uh, the state to have the idea, like let's provide some actual vocational training in there that will lift people up to be, to, to make a livable wage. And then that also transfers to us doing the work with our formerly incarcerated brothers and sisters to have them begin to see themselves in a new way and think in new ways and, and realize that the ceiling for who they can be and for what they can do is so far above what they imagined. You know, Jason and I, I never, I never imagined of hosting a podcast. I didn't know what a podcast was until six minutes, six months before getting out. I found this little book, read it three times, shared it with Ted. And he's like, uh, our executive director, our closest friend. And he's like, we're going to do a podcast. And the mindset, <laughs> we're going to do it. We don't know how to do it, but you're going to get out. Go. And that's what you're going to do. Wait a minute. Yeah. Wait a minute. My, my bachelor's degree is in something else. Don't matter. That's what we're going to do. And now um, I'm on a daily basis working on the back end of a website, um, uh, learning how, how to work that. Um, and, and so many things that I never imagined, but I realized that it's possible. If we set our mindset to do it, we can do it. Uh, Jay, would you speak to that a bit more? Well, as far as the mindset? Yeah. As far as, yeah. Well, the, I mean, the, the, how, how it transforms people and, 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 um, just basically empowers them. If you start there and then okay. you come out and want to get involved in any yeah. job, I'm I mean, not, I'm not an astronaut or, well, I mean, or something. I mean, the interesting, interesting thing to me is, you know, Phil, you were talking earlier about 
you know, the dream come true. Right. And I told you, I said, it's not a dream brother. You know, it's, it's the vision of a transformed man because when you transform your life and you really understand that it ain't all about you, it's about serving a cause or a purpose or a mission that's bigger than yourself. You're going to find a way you're going to find a way. And, and it comes with the, that courage that we were talking about to look in the mirror. Cause it starts right here, right? Like, okay. Honest inventory of who I was and the results that I caused, that, that my choices caused, right? Okay, I see that. I own it. And I'm sorry about it. So I'm turning away from that. And now I can look out to something bigger, something better, something unprecedented. And, and the choices I make today are going to bring that future into reality. Like That's Absolutely. what we want for people. That's what we want for people, to have that, like that value-adding, no-ceiling, unprecedented vision that, you know, really changed the world. Yeah, and that's, yeah. I'm glad you guys are doing um, because I was thinking about it the other day, and, you know, I'm on different coalitions for different pieces of legislation, and one of them has to do with visiting, and mm. they have been, you know, denied visit a year, visits a year. They said, well, at least we can get video visits. And, you know, I had been told previously, like, video visits aren't visits. Like, these aren't visits. I'm not, I'm not visiting with you guys. We're, we're on a video call right now. You're not in my living room. We're not, you know, physically close. So, um, and, and it just made me think about how the system is set up to make us happy for crumbs. And, mm-hmm. and that's the mindset that we just have to break because, like, yeah, I can, I can be happy I'm home. I can, I can just be grateful that I'm living the dream. Um, but I can also look higher and, and dream bigger and, and, you know, it stars the limit when it comes to, uh, like what I can and can't do, but I have to really like, honestly understand the shackles that were put on me mentally and emotionally as well through the system. Right. And that's the other thing too. It's hard for folks to, to call out the system. It's like, there's always this accountability, this remorse. And I have all of those things, but also too, I'm able to look at the system and, and what it does and, and the harm that it causes, you know, all the stuff that we talk about, these groups and these programs, they are done uh, despite the, the system and what they provide. Sure. Uh, sure. They, CCR uh, has their programs audited and learned that they were trash. I don't know if you guys seen that report uh, on the audit of their programs, but it's the mm-hmm. community, it's the support, and it's the love that really helped us. So it's like really understanding that too and, and not being happy to settle for crumbs and not just be happy. I'm just happy to be home. Like, that's cool. I, I, if folks are, and that's cool, like you said, if you want to just do something simple, cool. But, I mean, we have, honestly, for me, I feel like I have an obligation to, to society to make it better in every single way that I can find. So that's kind of where my head is at, but just understanding, too, like folks really are programmed to just be happy for, for little things. And, and that's cool. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Well, it takes all kinds. And, you know, uh, I want to say this. We got about uh, two and a half minutes until our time is up. Would you take some time, Phil, and share a little bit about what you're doing with restore justice and how the organization is helping people uh, and how they can reach out, reach y'all. Yep. Yep. As a matter of fact, I have one minute until uh, I have a legislative uh, drop in on another piece of legislation that is supporting uh, programs in prison, expanding the program and accessibility and also credit earning abilities. And that's part of my spiel that I'll be. <laughs> that's right. Uh, but yeah, so just also too, when I talk about showing up for my community, uh, it also involves the community that we left behind. And so part of that is trying to make sure that we're uh, bringing folks home because we all know who, who we left behind and how many more are eligible, but still get denied for petty uh, arbitrary reasons from the parole board. So there's a whole lot of reforms that we got to work on. And also, I also am of a mind and I'm sure you guys are. And a lot of people that listen to this, know the assets that we are to the community, the assets that we are towards um, making making sure we have well-adjusted youth. So um, that's part of why I fight, because I know that we can be assets to, to the community and provide that public safety that everyone has no, seemingly no idea how to get. Um, right. And also fights against when we have real good solutions, because like, as you guys said, the, the people that are closest to the problem have the best solutions. You know, that's what, you know, Everybody should know that, but they don't. But um, as far as the work that I'm doing now uh, with the with Restore Justice in my director of organizing role, it is kind of like developing a curriculum for system-impacted people, uh, mm-hmm. survivors. And that's not just survivors who lost loved ones, it's survivors who survived the system and how we can make and envision the society that we really want. Because mm-hmm. you know, 
for for years and years we've we've had crime and punishment crime and lock them up throw away the key it's been um you know that's actually the definition of insanity to keep doing that and thinking that we're going to make society better so uh, we're looking at how to activate and, and not just teach people but teach people how to teach people and like mm-hmm. keep those people activated and go into their communities and make sure that they're able to to knock on the doors of the problematic Dem, the moderate Democrats who are who are sometimes in the way of of progress, uh, and even maybe even the Republicans who might be of a mind to to vote for criminal justice reforms and, and reforms that will make make the state a little more equitable. But yeah. you know, there's a lot there's a lot that we do. Um, where, and I have to reach out to you. Where can our where can our where can our viewers and listeners find you at? Where can they find yeah, you? So I am kind of like off. Facebook. I don't really do Instagram. I, you can find me on Twitter at the Phil Melendez. Um, you can check us out our work at Restore uh, at www.restorecal.org, and we also have uh, Restore Justice Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram accounts that you can follow. See what we're up to and uh, see where you can Wonderful. plug in. Wonderful. All right, Phil. All right. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. Uh, you can reach out to us at Crop Organization across social media, Facebook, Instagram, uh, Twitter, and uh, LinkedIn. Please feel free to reach out to us. Reach, reach out to Phil and his organization again at RestoreCal.org. Uh, thank you again, Jason. That's been another good show on the Prison Post. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to the Prison Post, a production of the Crop Organization. We'll be sharing more stories from the world of prison reform and restorative justice, so please join us. You can listen to The Prison Post on all major podcasting platforms. Subscribe to our video cast on YouTube and like us on Facebook at The Prison Post and at Creating Restorative Opportunities and Programs.